You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Tuesday, March 15th, 2022. I'm Warren Pies, founder and strategist at 314 Research, joined today by Tony Greer, editor of The Morning Navigator. Tony, how are you doing? Great, Warren. How are you doing today? Good. We have a lot to talk about, so let's get to it. Uh, topics that I saw uh, bouncing today and uh, really catching my eye. PPI uh, hitting 10% level, Fed day tomorrow, obviously. Oil retracing that huge move from 130 back below 100. Um, obviously, some ancillary issues like the rumors that Saudi Arabia is going to diversify out of US dollars for the oil they sell. Uh, I figure we could start with oil since our last conversation uh, ended there. What do you make of this big retracement we've seen? Um, Warren, I think this is the opportunity, like I wrote about this morning, to fill our boots, right? And that's a, that's a term that we've always used in commodities on the floor, um, et cetera, et cetera, when something's coming to you and you get a chance to bid for it and buy it because there's actually selling around. Um, they're selling around because last week a lot of the commodity markets seem to have met their Icarus print, as we say, in commodity trading, where they kind of fly too close to the sun. Um, you know, usually their path gets too vertical, their wings melt and they fall back to earth. And we saw all that start last week in the physical commodity space. But the great rotation was still on where equity traders were still buying natural resources and just unloading technology. Um, what we're seeing this week is they're finally getting to some of the natural resources stocks since the commodities have backed all the way off the highs. So that's where I'm looking to fill my boots with commodity stocks on this dip. And I'm still looking to stay out of the way of technology as sort of the Nasdaq heads into a bear market territory here. And I think that that's what we're going to see more of this year, Warren. That's my that's my plan anyway, is for this great rotation to really continue and to snowball in a couple of different directions. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with you personally. It's at 314. That's been our, our take as well. Uh, one thing I, I especially like the, the high quality oil producers here. Uh, and so we've been looking like I brought this up in our last conversation up uh, to the high quality Canadian producers. When you back it out and look at the energy sector at large, what we did uh, last week was we did an oil-adjusted valuation. So if you watch valuations in the energy space, traditionally, you'll see multiples expand and contract with the price of oil, which is basically might be a little counterintuitive for people who don't follow the cyclical stock sector. But when you get oil prices going up, you you actually uh, have multiples expanding. So they look most or, or contracting, sorry. So they look the cheapest when oil's at the top and you see this the exact opposite behavior as oil sells off and so uh you have to adjust for oil price and when we adjust for oil price during this last five-year period of just fossil fuel divestment and really just a, a zeitgeist to move away from the hope to move away from from fossil fuels you've seen oil adjusted energy valuations really plummet and so we think there's a 40 percent re-rating 
in this group as we just go back to normal, back to what we were in the, the previous 25 years. I think that the impetus on energy security coming out of the, the Russia-Ukraine conflict, it's not going away in one week. Just retracing $30 back to trend doesn't change really much. You know, I think there's a lot of technical factors, just like you said, driving that that move. So so that's what, what we see. You see, you, does that line up with you? Yeah, I tend to agree with that, Warren. It makes sense that this is, you know, the, the oil price here is going to change the calculus for a lot of calculations. And, you know, it comes up in spades for the big oil companies, myself, and they're, they're kind of what I'm zeroing in on on this pullback to see if this pullback gets steep enough to buy them at a fair or shouldn't say fair at a better price technically so that we can attach a sensible risk reward um, should they go wrong. But it seems like that's, uh, you know, it seems like you're on the right track there, adjusting everything for the price of oil. Um, it's been extremely difficult in this particular commodity cycle because this has been the first time in my career that I've seen all three subsectors of commodities go batshit crazy all at once from energy to metals to grains. And I think that that's what's, you know, propelling us through to this new dimension in commodity trading. I feel like that's what the, um, credit markets have been reflecting. You know, we just saw the the two-year yields, the bat signal, I call it, you know, ramp up to 190 at the highs. We just saw 10-year yields, you know, north of 2%. We're, we're probably going to be pushing two and a quarter now. And five-year break-evens just jump out of bed from a long-time consolidation around 3% to 360. And, you know, that's what gets me to open up my mind and look back on the charts and say, you know, what did, what did rates look like the last time inflation was here? And, you know, I came up with, you know, last time inflation was here in the 70s, we had 10% CPI or PPI. We had 8 to 10% yields in five year, you know, so, so the, you know, to, to say that the Fed is behind the curve going into tomorrow is a massive understatement. So that, that's why I'm kind of hoping, quite honestly, that they do the adult thing and actually make their first move toward addressing the inflation by raising rates 50 basis points. And, you know, maybe some hawkish, um, some hawkish terminology after that. We'll see. But that's where I think we're heading, Warren. I think we're going to see more, um, you know, natural resources are going to pull into support here. And hard assets are still going to be coveted in, you know, this age of mass monetization that we're in, despite the fact that, you know, the Fed is in a pickle right now and has to figure out how they're going to adjust to it. So it's a very tricky trade. There's a lot of volatility, but I think we're in a, a, a solid opportunity week right now, if that's fair. Yeah. So Fed day tomorrow, that's, uh, you know, we've all been waiting for it. And, and, you know, we've gone from, you know, pricing in max hawkishness, in my view, you know, we have some investment banks are calling for nine straight hikes all the way up through March of next year. And, and basically um, just we had 50 basis point priced in as a certainty just before the Russia Ukraine conflict, maybe a month ago it was a, like a more or less a certainty in the futures market. And so now we're back to a, the pretty consensus that we're going to get one one hike tomorrow, 25 basis points. Uh, from our view, you know, the Fed is supposed to be data dependent on price stability and full employment, right? And that's the dual mandate. From our view, we think that if you study history, there's actually a lot that the Fed considers when they when they look to make a decision. We look at equity market drawdowns or rallies. We look at credit spreads, high yield credit spreads in particular. Break-even inflation is another one, and the yield curve. 
And specifically, the yield curve and credit spreads are things the Fed has called out uh, in some of their white papers and memos saying that these are some of the best market-based predictors of economic growth in the six to nine months out. So when we look at all that stuff, the Fed's in a bind, in my view, in our view. You know, you see uh, today, or just that close yesterday, high yield credit spreads, 408 basis points. So that is, uh, we've only seen 7.5% of all Fed rate hikes come when credit spreads were at or above 400 basis points. Truly mm-hmm. verified here. So if we're going to get a hike tomorrow, it's going to be one of those rare 7% cases where we get in the face of blown out spreads. Same with equity markets. Very rare to see a 10% or greater drawdown where the Fed's hiking into. That's what we're getting. So uh, the yield curve flattening to sub 30 basis points. Again, it's rare to see the Fed hike in the face of all this. But like you mentioned, on the other side, break-even inflation has just shot up. So we usually look at you know, we look at the two year as a transitory kind of inflation. And so that's been skyrocketing. But even the 10 year break even has gone up and has challenged 3% here recently. We were looking for that. We would, you know, in, to get that Fed put to kick in, we would like to see that go down to 2%. That doesn't look like it's coming anytime soon. So that's kind of what, what we're looking at. Does that make sense to you? Very much so. We're, we're in lockstep, Warren. You know, it feels to me like, um, credit markets, and I'm not a bond expert at all, but the treasury market seems to be, you know, making the move for the Federal Reserve, dare I say, you know, they're, they're, it looks like it's acting like a little bit of vigilantism now, finally, because, you know, the commodity markets have backed off their highs. But I feel like the Fed is, uh, excuse me, I feel like the treasury market is still adjusting to this commodity world that is dramatically changing and and very permanently changing right before our eyes. And I think they're kind of looking past maybe even this Fed meeting towards, you know, longer lasting and way more serious inflation. I mean, I haven't seen five year break evens leap out of bed like they did last week in since the beginning of this move. So it feels very much like a new inflationary leg to me. Maybe it's a bit of a delayed reaction to, you know, all of the Icarus prints, the actual high prints and commodities that we saw last week. But I feel like those prints are just um, a sign of things to come. You know, that that's when markets are kind of banging out their new range on the top side and they'll fall back into that range, find a low end of the range. And then we're going to kind of continue where we're going in this upward path for commodities. And to me, that's what the bond market is reacting to. Um, And I'm sure it obviously has a lot to do with what's going to happen tomorrow. But I feel like no matter what, I mean, if we got 25 basis points tomorrow, we know that there's got to be more on the way. I feel like if we get only 25 basis points tomorrow, man, you're setting up for an even more inflationary scenario. and, And that's what scares me. I mean, you know, commodities could take another leg up from there. I think that's the risk that you have. And there's much less risk of them falling back to earth because that would put, you know, that would be a lot more comfortable for 8 billion people for commodities to fall right back to where they came for gas to go back to $3 or $2 for copper to go back, you know, to AK LME or back below a buck and a half on the COMEX. And I just don't see that happening right now. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of today's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. I, I think that, you know, the points you're making about the commodity moves you've seen really, in our view, before the Russia Ukraine conflict, we saw, uh, we, we saw a path to moderating CPI through year end. So I, I think with a, a couple of very realistic assumptions, we could have seen CPI get to 3% or below year over year by the end of the year. I, I mean, especially if the car market started to unfreeze, basically, which I would, you have to admit, that's a supply chain based situation. So that th- those were some of the assumptions we we're making. And then with the Russia-Ukraine conflict, we had to rerun a lot of our numbers. And so we had basically put in a plug in our model for uh, food CPI to continue going up at the rate it had been. But with what's happened in the grains market, specifically in the wheat market, uh, we started rerunning those numbers. And uh, what we find is that the food and beverage CPI generally is uh follows grain prices and wheat prices by about seven months. So when we get a spike in wheat prices today, that flows into that part of the CPI in about seven months. That's the lead lag relationship that we find. Um, oil is also so re- so correlated to the energy component of the CPI that we broke apart, whether it's from the energy-related um, cost of living stuff in housing or in your transportation segment. And that was about 24% of the total excess that we've seen in this most recent seven and a half percent CPI reading that we that we saw, so we reran that with a boosted oil price because I think you have to expect oil prices to be uh, sustainably higher going through this conflict, as we kind of pointed out last week. So when you do all that, our analysis shows that we should expect about a ten percent CPI reading in the next uh, three or four months, and that we get through the year, we will moderate because of base effects. But even under kind of, I'd say, just baseline uh, assumptions, we'll probably be at about a 5% CPI one way or another when we get out of 2022. So it's going to be, uh, it's it's made the Fed's job much, much more difficult. So I, I, that's how we see it. And see PPI being 10% is kind of just a, um, it, it's just an appetizer for what's coming in the CPI if if our analysis holds. It makes a lot of sense, Warren. I feel like the Federal Reserve is kind of putting off the inevitable a little bit if they're if they're going to slow walk this inflation, um, you know, their their rate hikes. Um, you know, I tell you that you 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 sound. It sounds like your view rhymes a little bit with Rao Powell, who has been you know really spot on where he's watching what he tra- he what he calls the ten year the chart of truth the ten year yield, and you know that's the chart where if you dial back and look at it from thirty thousand feet up. 10-year yields rally and make a lower high and then fade and continue lower. And I'm in, I'm in a camp that things are different this time and that yields are going to keep going higher. And the reason that I'm in a different camp this time is that we haven't had attack on commodity supply before. And I think we might have discussed this in the last um, daily briefing, but it's always been in commodities, the answer to high prices is high prices when you can pivot to the commodity producer and say, OK, at this price, open up the taps and let him have it, you know, and whether it's across metals, grains or energy. And at this point, we don't have anything to let him have. And at this point, when we are facing a humanitarian crisis that I think we are facing 
that to me is going to be irreversible. And that that will be when we see the whites of their eyes and in inflation, meaning the Fed's eyes and what they're going to do. And this is just sort of this is semantics. You know, this is semantics and probably due to the Fed perpetually catering to the equity market. Right. And, and the Black Rocks and the JP Morgans that are long all these funds and equities, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, kind of maybe maybe delaying higher rates for longer in hopes that the equity market will stay on its feet. This time, it feels like the rotation out of technology is a foregone conclusion. And I don't think that we've scratched the surface of the amount of rotating out of that sector that we're go- that we are going to see. Like I still continue to field calls from from concerned investors from the retail straight up to the fund investor that says, you know, you've been pretty spot on. You're short tech here. What do you think? For example, some retail people calling up saying, you know, I'm on Facebook for a really long time and, and, you know, I'm down a lot from where I was. And what do you think? And, you know, you tell people, well, I think tech's finished. And they'll, they always hang up the phone and say, yeah, that guy's crazy. You know, they, they always say tech's finished, right? And they feel very comfortable with all the technology that they own. And I look at the prices on the screen and I still, still see social media-led tech destruction everywhere I look. And I feel like we're due for a moment where that retail group is underwater and they don't really know how to react to the stock price that they're seeing. You know, remember that stocks crash when they're oversold and keep going down. And I'm not saying that we're going to see a crash. I just feel like the technology sector is well set up for a much steeper slide into support from where we are. So that's maybe where our view is different and we can hash that out a little. Yeah, I mean, I I think I I hear you and I I would say I can understand that if, if rates keep going up, we've been calling tech long duration for a while and basically looking at your equity exposure and you need to, as a, as a kind of a mapping the bond duration concept over onto the equity markets. And I feel like a, a number of strategists have kind of followed on and are starting to do that. So it makes sense that rates are going up and, and tech's getting killed. And I mean, but there's so much, here's our thought. There's so much of the economy. So there is this idea that the Fed could hike rates and the economy is not the market. This is what I heard earlier in the year before Russia, Ukraine stalled headlines was that the economy is not the market. And you saw everybody pointing to credit spreads as the market was falling apart and saying, see, look at this. Credit spreads haven't really blown out, even though the market's falling apart. And so, yeah, we're no longer in this, this kind of dynamic where the market is the economy. And what we said is if you kind of look at history, it's not a linear relationship between equity market sell-offs and credit spreads, for instance, that usually you get to about a 10% sell-off and then you'd get a parabolic move up in credit spreads. Yeah. And that's exactly what we're seeing. And I think actually the reverse is true, that the economy and the markets are more tied together than they've ever been, and that this is going to create a compressed cycle effect. So the Fed can only go so far before they induce a true crash, economic crash. The you know household net worth, 41% of household net worth is in equities right now. That is by far an all-time high. So one of the things we've been looking at is that net worth, a spike in net worth is what preceded this consumption boom that we're, that we're now kind of enjoying as an economy. And it kind of flows into all the economists look at it and say, hey, the economy is very strong. Well, the wealth effect works both ways. And if you have so much of the economy and ass, or asset price dependent, so much of the economy is consumption dependent and so much of consumption is asset price dependent. What happens when these assets start 
falling apart like they are right now. I think what it does is it's, it compresses cycles. The feedback loop to the, to the Fed gets really strong, and they aren't going to be able to go anywhere near this, you know, seven hikes this year. I don't see that happening. So I go back to the playbook in my mind is to kind of look at, to look through the hawkishness right now, keep your eyes on this Fed pressure scorecard that we laid out, all these different kind of forensics that we can check in the market to determine when is the Fed going to reverse course? When does that Fed put come into play? I still think that's, that's the, um, that's the framework we're applying. So we're going to wait till, you know, this will start and, and stop faster than the consensus believes. That's that's my and our belief. So yeah, I'd say it's it's different. And the final point I'd make, and you can address, is there is a there is a huge part of the inflation that we're seeing right now that is unaddressable by Fed policy. Really, I mean, what we're seeing come out of the geopolitical situation, they can't really do anything about that. They can they they're trying to do surgery with a machete. You know, it's it's going to be really hard for them to. You know, all they can do is just crash the economy and crash demand. That's the only tool they have to solve the, the oil price spike. It's the only tool they have to solve the wheat price spike or food price spike that we're seeing right now. And, you know, I, I would be surprised. History argues that it's very rare for the Fed to go forward and crash the economy to try and accomplish just to, to steady commodity prices when it's, when it's really a supply-based um, proximate cause. Yeah, we, we might have some, uh, you know, you might have some stagflation demand dying just by the price of commodities, right? I mean, you, you, we could have, you know, demand destruction by gasoline price hikes. You know, I mean, we started to head towards five, six dollars a gallon. It, you know, this is already a household conversation. Everybody's grocery bill is much higher. They probably haven't even realized it yet. This is only going to get massively, massively worse. Um, I wonder where the supply of commodities is going to come from as the sort of global trade plates are, are shifting, you know, right now, you know, Russia's obviously not going to be exporting wheat all the way around the world. Um, that's going to change the calculus there. Um, Saudi Arabia, you know, the comment that they'll, they're talking about taking yuan for oil is really interesting and I think changes the picture a little bit. Obviously, they're not going to be supplying the oil that Joe Biden is hoping for them to supply right after they get done um, with the 81 beheadings. But um, we'll see what happens when uh, I, I don't know where the commodities are going to come from, Warren. That's my concern. You know, and it feels like, you know, I don't know who knows where LME Nickel is going to reopen tomorrow. Um, you know, I think that's going to be an exciting uh, I got an, I got more popcorn to watch that than I've had ready for any event in the markets for a long time. So that's going to be interesting to see how that prices. But I, I got a feeling that we're going to see base metals and energy resume their uptrend right after the Federal Reserve. I, I think maybe that the pullbacks that we saw last week are our commodity markets kind of getting ahead of whatever rate hike is coming. And, you know, taking a little bit of the late speculation out of the markets, even though the oil market, there's not a lot of length in right now. Um, you know, that that's what I want to see play out after the Fed. And I feel like a quarter of a basis point hike and you're going to see the great rotation go back on like Donkey Kong, where we are buying natural resources hand over fist, rotating out of technology hand over fist. And we'll take it to a level that makes more people a little bit more uncomfortable. That's what I'm seeing. Yeah, I mean, I think 
Yeah, every the, the final points I make on the Fed and our view is every time we get a rally like this, it actually, from the, the case that I just laid out, it actually takes some of the pressure off the Fed. So you, sure you know, equities move up, credit spreads narrow. You know, we saw the yield curve steepen a little bit today. So on days like this, if you're buying stuff like this, you're really chasing, you, this is giving the Fed the green light to move forward. And I think that what stops the Fed is when this kind of price action starts to reverse. So I, I think that the, these kinds of days push the Fed to a more hawkish, you know, stance. And if we had, if we string months of this together, then I'll be wrong. I think that though something breaks if, uh, at some point in the system as they start on this hawkish uh, path or rate hiking path, however you want to define it. You mentioned the the, yeah. the, the Saudi news. I wanted to, before we, we jump off today, I wanted to just get your thoughts on that. It was kind of a blip on the radar screen, but um, interesting to hear they might start accepting yuan uh, in, for, for oil. And that's obviously a huge change if it were to come to pass. And um, just wondering if you, you had any thoughts on that. Man, uh, you know, I'm trying to keep all this in perspective, Warren. But when I see when I see headlines like that, that are so so much against the sort of legacy and establishment financial markets that we've been in for a long time, and you know, you see you see the actions by Russia that are all really. I, I mean, I can't even get a handle on the Russia Ukraine conflict as to what's going on. But when I see what they're doing, you know, that's kind of bucking the global establishment system as well. So I, you know, I, I just feel, you know, and I don't even know how to quantify it properly. I, I just, you know, it's one of those things that they, that maybe I won't know until I see the headline that it smacks me upside the head to understand what's going on. But there's a clear pivot by a couple of really, really relevant commodity holding and commodity producing countries sort of away from the dollar denominated system. And I don't think that really, I really, I'm not one of the people that believes that the dollar is about to lose reserve status in any way, um, because I think we've got still the most powerful aircraft carriers to send around the world. Um, but I just do see shades of a changing of the fundamentals that we have been operating on for a really long time. And, and I, I guess I, I welcome the system being challenged a little bit. You know, it's kind of the natural forces of economics breaking through. And, um, you know, there, there'll be, you know, efficiencies to take advantage of along the path of that. But those are, that's kind of how I'm feeling it, Warren. I can't really put them all in uh, into context, but they kind of all fall into this bucket of nations sort of, you know, in different ways, shading away from the dollar hegemony system, if that's fair to say. And I don't even know if that's the best interpretation of it. I, yeah, I I can. Uh, these are big headlines. We're getting big headlines in a lot of news um, that, you know, again, so much happens in just a few days after, you know, years where things don't happen. We're going to take another quick break to hear words from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, I wanted to just play a clip from two guys I respect, Warren Mosler and Mike Green, in their conversation. Uh, Warren Mosler, father of uh, modern monetary theory, really, um, 
putting out his kind of thesis that the, the Saudis control the oil market at present. So let's, let's take a listen. Tough to argue. So what you're saying is effectively, once demand returned to the level at which the Saudis could underproduce in the classic form of a monopolist, that now the price is being set largely by that monopolist is the easiest way of articulating it. I say it's being set at the margin entirely by him, but you do get some noise from traders trading in other markets. But he's he's entirely, he's a price setter. He has the oil, you either pay his price or you shut the lights off. Now you can get by a few days, you can increase your inventory, you can use it out of inventory, you can do various things. But it's like, you know, if you're fishing and you got the fish and you keep winding the string, he's gonna be in the boat. You've gotta to come to them at their price or shut the lights off at some point. They're, they're the monopolists. And yes, there is there is an inventory out there that can be used first, but it's pretty limited and it's nobody wants to use it. Well, and this is this is again where it becomes important and it speaks to the characteristic of markets that have natural monopolist characteristics, right? Very expensive and difficult to store oil, for example. In the same way, it's very difficult and expensive to store electricity as anyone who has tried to purchase a battery for their home can tell you, you can maybe get six, six to 24 hours worth of electricity storage at a price that seems even remotely reasonable for a local in institution or local, a, resident, a residential or a commercial address. Those are markets that naturally gravitate to this dynamic of a monopoly. And you're just highlighting that that's exactly the case yeah. in oil. Effectively, the battery storage in terms of days of inventory is very, very low. And so it is only under extraordinary circumstances where effectively we run out of the ability to store an incremental amount that that production can spill over, destroy it, drive prices negative, and take away the power of that monopolist. What's happening right now is the monopolist has rebuilt that power. All right, interesting thoughts always from uh, Warren Mosler. Um, also interesting first name, I like that one. Um, Tony, uh, before we wrap it, let's uh, let's hit a few questions. Uh, so, one in particular for you: What are your thoughts on Glencore uh, as a large conglomerate involved in metals, oil, coal, natural gas, and ags? What's intriguing, or is there something uh, that you prefer other than Glencore? Uh, no, Glencore is a great way to uh, you know ride this commodity rally for sure. You know, no one, no one will ever forget uh, that they went public at the top of the last commodity cycle. And, you know, the stock troughed for about a decade. And now they're, you know, they're seeing better days again. And that makes sense to me, given what's going on. Um, I would like to see us get through the LME Nichols um, moral crevasse with Glencore not being involved in any, um, you know, detrimental way. Um, to maintain a positive attitude. And I'm not saying that they have anything to do with it. I'm just saying when there's a large commodity tree shaking like it is right now with the number of margin calls and trades being canceled and all kinds of obvious chicanery, you know, you want to see the big players make sure that they get out unscathed um, before, you know, you make a full commitment to them. Stock's been on fire. It's uh, it's way away from its moving averages right now. So it's not something that I would march into the ring and buy um, at last sale, but it's certainly something that I would keep on my radar, um, you know, plot some bids out below the market. And if the conditions are remain the way they are, um, kind of not be afraid to step in and buy Glencore into the moving averages 
similarly to the way that I'm not afraid to buy commodities at the moving averages because I think we're in for a much, much longer cycle. So, yeah, in the big picture, it looks OK. Let's see the smoke clear on nickel and then uh, and then I'd be more positive on it again after that. Right. Yep. Um, final kind of question. It's an easy one. Uh, if there is a ceasefire in the Ukraine, how will it, this impact the price of crude short term and long term? I figure it's a hard question, but it's it's definitely a scenario I think we should we should consider and, and kind of work through just for a minute or two here. Absolutely, man. Yeah, and, and you can feel free to jump in with me, Warren. I would imagine a ceasefire, there's probably some kind of a knee-jerk trade lower in oil that, that probably doesn't last very long. Um, you know, the, the Ukraine-Russia situation brought forward a lot of commodity concerns and a lot of commodity tightness, and none of that is really going to go away. So it would be nice to have world peace, obviously, and no conflict and no more threat of nuclear war in any way, shape or form. Um, but I don't think that that is what is going to, you know, I don't think that that was, is what was causing our widespread inflation in the first place. So I don't expect the inflation or the inflation narrative to go away in a peacetime um, scenario. I mean, the S&P would rally 200 points just out of, you know, having something to celebrate and one less thing to worry about. But, um, you know, I don't know that that would be sustainable either because it still feels to me like commodities are set up for a super cycle and, and an extended rally. And the Fed is going to be battling this for way, way longer than than this Fed meeting. This is just the first one. So we'll see what happens from here. Yeah, this is a hard question, but it's one that it's worth thinking through. Uh, give you my thoughts for a minute. It's if we if we had a ceasefire in the Ukraine right now, um, you know, I think you get a knee-jerk sell-off, um, knee-jerk rotation out of the stuff that's worked throughout the conflict. Uh, but this has been, this is a changing point in history. This is what I said last conversation. We wrote a, a note to clients, and our point was, after this conflict, things will never go back to the way they were. They'll never be the way they were before. The the How you, you know, all of the big oil companies, uh, the international oil companies have left Russia. And the history of those types of moves, when you have that kind of a vacuum of intellectual capital and real capital leave a, a country is you end up seeing oil production slowly decline over time. Take a look at Venezuela, take a look at anywhere that's happened before. Um, on top of that, you have the self-sanctioning and the idea that sanctions in general will have to be reversed at a ceasefire. So there's obviously an assumption in the question that you get some kind of pullback on the on the sanctions. Well, a lot of the sanctions have been implemented ad hoc by the private sector. So how do you reconnect all of the the you know cutting off a a, a country from from global trade is one thing. Reconnecting all of the 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 arteries and capillaries of of trade is another thing. It's like a piecemeal thing, and point that's going to be a much slower process so i think that it's just created a totally different world order moving forward we don't know how it's going to end up but even the most optimistic uh resolution of this is is going to be bullish for crude oil and i think bearish for russian supply so I, my way again taking it back to where we started i think when you do oil adjusted valuations the energy sector is about 40% undervalued, even adjusted for oil prices, you know, that multiples will expand no matter if oil gives you a move higher, 
If earnings estimates go higher, these are additional tailwinds. I think you get a multiple expansion and a multiple re-rating out of that group. So oil adjusted multiples going up 40% in the energy sector over the next couple of years. That's what we would do. We would be buying any dips on a uh, ostensible ceasefire or resolution in the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So that's kind of my 40,000 foot way to, to, to end this thing, I think. Um, we missed a couple questions, just so much to talk about today. If you have questions, um, you could try and shoot them over to Tony or I on Twitter. Maybe we get to them next time. We should be here next Tuesday um, doing this again. Thanks again for watching the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Ash will be here tomorrow with Darius Dale. So that's gonna be obviously a good pairing. Excited to see what those guys have to say. Uh, for for me, thank you for watching, Tony. Appreciate the time. Always, Warren. Great job today, man. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.